Welcome to season nine of Penn South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm your host, Penn South Africa board member, Bongani Kona. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison, or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. At the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with Egyptian poet and lyricist Galal El-Bahari, Al-Bahari has been unjustly held since 5 March 2018 and has reportedly been tortured and beaten while in detention. On 31 July 2018, Al-Bahari was sentenced to three years imprisonment on charges of, and I quote, disseminating false news and rumors by writing a book containing false news and statements about the Egyptian armed forces, end quote. And, and I quote, insulting the Egyptian army by issuing a book containing phrases that offend the Egyptian army, end quote. The sentence related to his book of poetry, The Finest Women on Earth, which challenged the official narrative around the Egyptian military and its relation to politics. Despite serving an unjust three-year sentence, in July 2021, Egyptian prosecutors subsequently brought forth additional fabricated charges against El-Bahari, leading to his continued arbitrary pre-trial detention. Penn International believes that El-Bihari is being targeted for his writings, which are critical of the Egyptian authorities. He began a hunger strike on 5 March, the fifth anniversary of his arrest in protest against his continued unjust detention. And on 1 June 2023, he escalated his hunger strike, refusing to take fluids. On Sunday, 4 June, during a prison visit, Galal El-Bahari informed his family that he had no choice but to suspend his hunger strike due to his declining health. September 2023 marks two years that El-Bahari has spent in arbitrary pre-trial detention. PNSA echoes Penn International's deep concern with El-Bahari's deteriorating health. We join Penn International and reiterate its calls on the Egyptian authorities to release El-Bahari immediately and unconditionally and ensure he has access to adequate medical care pending his release. You can read more about the intricacies of his case in our show notes. In this fourth episode of Season 9, Yawande Omotosho asked Camille Danji about our latest book, Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. They explore traditions of black nature writing, gardening, heritage, motherhood, environmental justice, and wonder. Yewande Omotosha's debut novel, Bomboy, won the South African Literary Award First Time Author Prize and was shortlisted for the 2013 Etisalat Prize. Her second novel, The Woman Next Door, was shortlisted for several prizes, including the International Dublin Literary Award and has been translated into multiple languages. Her third novel, An Unusual Grief, was published in 2022. 
early on again in the book, you have the line where you say a garden that seems to have nothing to offer humans but beauty. And when I read that, I just, it settled on me in a way. Early on in my gardening, I thought I must grow food. It has to be productive. And of course that's fine. But I loved the kind of release I felt in your exaltation of beauty. Camille Dungy is the author of Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. She has also written Guidebook to Relative Strangers, Journeys into Race, Motherhood and History, and four collections of poetry, including Trophic Cascade, winner of the Colorado Book Award. Dungy edited Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry. A university distinguished professor at Colorado State University, Dungy's honors include the 2021 Academy of American Poets Fellowship, 2019 Guggenheim Fellowship, an American Book Award, and fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts in both prose and poetry. Another thing that I say about hope is that without resilience, hope is just a passing fancy. And resilience comes from struggle, from experiencing hardship and finding out ways of manifesting change out of that hardship. That's what soil is. Soil is not fertile without the kind of composted matter that comes from waste and death and decomposition and decay. That experience of finding out how to ingest and incorporate the ruin is what makes soil fertile. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Welcome to Penn South Africa's The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. This is the fourth episode of season nine. I am Yewande Omotosho, and I'm so thrilled to be interviewing Camille Dungy. I'm in Johannesburg, and Camille is joining us from Colorado. We're both recording from our homes, so you might hear some background noise during the conversation. Camille, thank you. Really, I want to start by actually just saying thank you for Soil. Thank you for this offering. If I had to describe reading it, it was like listening in on a very eloquent, bold, sometimes funny, free, at times meandering train of thought. Mm. You know, thoughts, yes, about soil, thoughts about gardens, planting, but also about belonging, about words, about the, the small and big crimes human beings commit against nature and also against themselves. It's a broad sweep that this book concerns itself with, that you concern yourself with. And after reading it, I'm, I'm just left filled up with the expanse of it. So thank you. And, and I think a wonderful way to begin our conversation is actually to invite you to read a few passages from the book for us. Thank you so much. Thank you for those kind words and about the project. I did want this to feel that kind of immediacy that you were inside my thoughts and my life and my the ways that I was experiencing the world in the one year and seven years that this book really focuses on. So that makes me very happy that it achieve that. 
I'm going to read a poem. This is a prose narrative is how I talk about this book. And yet I weave poems throughout the book because I think of myself first as a poet. I think I think about the world often as a poet. And I wanted the readers of this book to feel some of that slightly different way of thinking than the rest of the prose does. So though this book is very much about my garden, it's also about my place in the world. And one little piece of information that may help is that my place in the world is about 45 minutes from the entrance to Rocky Mountain National Park, which is a U.S. national park that has in it a road called Trail Ridge Road, which will be referred to in the course of this poem. And so now I'm thinking a little bit more broadly than my exact backyard when I'm thinking about this, but the concerns in the poem are concerns that face all of us, I think. In her mostly white town, an hour from Rocky Mountain National Park, a Black poet considers centuries of protests against racialized violence. Two miles into the sky, the snow builds a mountain unto itself. Some drifts can be 30 feet high. Picture a house, then bury it. Plows come from both ends of the road, foot by foot, month by month. This year, they didn't meet in the middle until mid-June. Maybe I'm not expressing this well. Every year, snow erases the highest road. We must start near the bottom and plow toward each other again. Thank you. When you started planning and and thinking about soil, there's a part in the book where you're making an application, which was in the end a successful application for a Guggenheim Fellowship. And you say, like, you made it clear in the application, I wanted to write about my yard. Mm -hmm. And you also had this sense, I don't know if it was exactly at the same time, but also there came this sense that you had that there was something improbable about a Black mother writing about nature. Mm -hmm. Could you talk as you bring us into your book and your project, could you talk about that tension and how that tension I found actually feeds so much of what is particular in soil and the stories that get woven into this garden? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think I'm going to actually come at the answer to this question by talking about another book I worked on about maybe 10 years before I started really working on this application that you speak of for this fellowship. And that was an anthology of Black American environmentally focused poetry. And that book was triggered by my reading some of my own poems in a public forum and somebody coming to me afterwards and saying, I never really thought about Black people writing about nature. (laughs) Do you know anybody else who does that? 
and I did, <laughs> you know, I did know other people who do it. I was able to collect this whole anthology of Black American writers. And I really actually had to be specific that they were Black American writers because the ways that Black people across the diaspora write about nature were so many ways that it would have been an impossible collection <laughs> if I didn't focus on that particular cultural and political and historical concerns of what it means to be a Black from the United States. And yet, hmm. the book continues, e even, you know, almost 15 years past its publication, it continues to surprise people or shock people or people see the writers in this work in a new light. And so I've spent a lot of my career as a writer living in this quandary where I know that I am doing this work. I know that there are these compatriots who are doing this work and thinking about these questions. I know that if we don't really broaden a sense of who writes about the greater than human world and how, we're just going to continually barrel down this catastrophic track that we're yeah. on. And yet, daily, I continue to face this incredulity, right? This idea of like, wait, I didn't know Black people thought like that, or I didn't know that women were writing in this way, or I don't really see that many people who are actively involved in the act of parenting or mothering in particular, engaged in these public forums around environmental work. And so when I was writing that application, I knew it was a long shot in a sense, because I knew that the person I understood myself to be, the writer and the thinker that I understood myself to be, continues to be surprising or unseen to many others. Linked to that, as I was reading your book, so much of what I was reading kept talking to me about one thing, which is mm -hmm. belonging. Like I kept seeing, so you belonging, let's say in Colorado, your childhood location that you left and returned to with your husband, Ray, and, and daughter, Kelly, decades later, your garden belonging where it is, and the plants and animals that belong there, whose stories are from long ago, you know, and this whole thing of rewilding, of having it be itself, the belonging of us to our geographies, so African-Americans, Native Americans, First Peoples. The idea of belonging to a space, belonging on the street that you're walking on, feeling entitled to beauty, to walk unharassed by police, and so on. This thing of belonging kept coming back to me. Now, I, I'm a belonging junkie. You know, I'm, that's my, for my own personal reasons, belonging is something that comes up a lot for me. So interestingly, I saw it in your book, but there was an aspect of the belonging that struck me the most. And, and here I'm getting more towards my question. There's an occasional refrain throughout the book, language differently, but it rings through. Sometimes it comes out as, what does any of this have to do with nature? Mm -hmm. Or in another part of the book, it's articulated as, what's with all this history? Because in the story, you take us backwards and forwards through time constantly in the story of this garden. Now, for me, when I hear that question, that refrain, that's a question that's related to the belonging of the story you're telling in the book that you're writing. That this thing you're saying, 
belongs in a book about the environment or about nature, that the things you're putting down here belong. Because that question is a questioning of why is this here? Why is this being given to me in this way? When I was reading the book, I never had to have that question. I was with you all the way. Whatever you brought on the page, I was there. Like I never had the, oh, why is this there? Why is this not there? But each time the refrain came up, it was curious for me. And so I guess the question I have, in that refrain, were you addressing a certain kind of reader? Were you addressing yourself? To whom was that kind of assertion of belonging for? Thank you for that question. Sorry, so long. <laughs> no, no, no. But I feel like it needs to be long because the question is so, it's so capacious, right? <laughs> I want to say one thing, which is I think that the word that I would want to use rather than belonging, because mm. we belong here, mm. right? All, all of this exactly. belongs here. The word that I would use is welcome, right? Where do mm. I find welcome? Mm. Where do the plants and animals that have been really eradicated from this landscape, but which are native to the landscape, how do I create a space of welcome? in my yard for those other living beings? How do I make a space of welcome around me for other people who may look or think differently than I do, but who are my kin or my neighbors, right? We all belong, but we do not all feel or find welcome in these spaces where we walk. And I think that those moments of interrogation or honestly defensiveness that you are speaking of are these yeah. spaces where I was reminded in the writing or revising of this book of the places where I know I was going to come up against times where I did not feel welcome, even as I was articulating mm -hmm. the facts of my realities that I knew belonged in those spaces. And so those points of questioning or defending or guiding maybe sometimes, like just bear with me, those kinds of moments. Yeah. Those yeah. are with the knowledge that I've walked through this world now for half a century over and over again, bumping into people who question my belonging and having to then re-insist mm -hmm. on demanding my welcome. Hmm. Yeah. And so those are moments that you see. I worked in the revision of this book on making those, entrusting you, right? Entrusting you, Yolanda, being one of my readers, right? Yes. Believing that there would be readers out there who came to this book with a, with a desire to read, to connect, to, to believe and to trust the path and prioritizing you as a reader, that kind of reader over the reader who I started out the book being really defensive about, but I didn't want to completely erase those realities of those moments where I knew certain kinds of readers and thinkers would push against me. Yeah. And so I left some of those moments still. I love how you speak about that and answer that question because it makes me think about you the gardener, Camille the gardener, and the connections between being in your garden and being in your text, like working your craft and also being in the garden, there's a kind of a 
generosity and a freeness with how you're in the garden versus the need to control the land and you know have it under your thumb mm-hmm. like there's a real kind of space you give and it feels like when you're describing this thing like saying you didn't want to leave that out because there's a truth in it mm-hmm. right so you weren't going to tidy it up but you left those pieces there that refrain there to acknowledge that there is that as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a funny line where you say, you can't believe, I think it's quite early on in the book where you say, you can't believe anyone trusts you as a gardener (laughs) or something like that. I actually laugh because, you know, by the end of the book, I certainly learned a lot from you and it feels very personal. It does feel like you're talking to me. I'd learned a lot about lots, but I'd learned a lot about gardening, especially two beautiful things that really stand out for me. One of them Early on, again, in the book, you have the line where you say a garden that seems to have nothing to offer humans Mm -hmm. but beauty. And when I read that, I just, it settled on me in a way. The first garden I've ever had because I have my own home. And early on in my gardening, I thought I must grow food. It has to be productive. And of course, that's fine. But I loved the kind of release I felt in your exaltation of beauty. It just felt like you were telling me something. That, that I really heard in my heart as a gardener. And then also the sense I get from reading about your relationship with your garden is that you cultivate what I think of as like a radical generosity because there's so many examples in the text. And one stands out for me. There's an account, I think it's with artichoke and ants eating away at the artichoke. Yes. And there are things you can do to get rid of the ants so you can preserve the artichoke. And there are many examples of that in the book where there are all these things you can do to get rid of the scavengers and there's this thing you do to control the seed and you don't do those things. And then you have this beautiful line where you say, if I cultivate a flourishing, I want its reach to be wide. And that's what I call this radical generosity where you're always opening, you're always opening. And I did wonder, I said, did you, Camille, always hold that kind of depth of generosity or did the Prairie Project, so that's the name of your garden, the Prairie Project, did it teach you that? Well, I think that the Prairie Project allowed me to step into that part of myself. It had to have been a part of myself that already existed. Otherwise, I wouldn't pursue this kind of folly. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's a certain aspect of this that's radically insane if by insane you mean out of step with uh, the controlled, rational ways of being in a particular society. Mm -hmm. And so to buy this American suburban home with a really perfectly manicured, lovely lawn, et cetera, and make it a wild space For me to even have that impulse means that there was something in me already. And yet, that being the case, I had to learn a lot about what it means to garden in a low water, strange climate. It's not strange for this place, but it's strange for me where it snows late and early and then it just gets hot. And it's just kind of changeable, let's say, in that way. And so I had to, I just had to learn things and be humbled in that learning, in that kind of acquisition of new knowledge that how much I don't know, how much over and again, I'm reminded that I need to learn more in order 
to really honestly prepare this space. I've learned in the garden some ideas about self-perception and how frequently my messaging, right, this kind of larger ideas about how things are supposed to look, who's supposed to be in a certain space, what makes for tidiness versus an aesthetically savory versus something else, your idea of a garden, what it's supposed to even grow. Is it supposed to just grow tomatoes and cucumbers or can it yes. just grow wildflowers? All of these kind of questions, I am forever, really week after week, walking through the garden, reinterrogating because something grows up in a place or a way I had not known it was going to. And then I have to decide, do I let it keep going or do I pull it and exercise that kind of control? So it's all the time. I do have like this little lettuce plot, right? And there was something growing there. I couldn't figure out what it was. And the other day I looked out, I was like, oh, that was a sunflower. But it was so out of the places where I had <laughs> planted sunflowers that it just didn't occur to me that it was going to be a sunflower. But now it's a sunflower. And there you go. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. It's incredible. I mean, the other thing, I would be curious to know two things. You know, we need to set up visits. You know, I went online trying to like find images of the fairy project. I was just like, I have to see this. People will come and see your garden, right? If you would let us. But then I also wondered, because the number of, of things I've planted since I was reading your book, <laughs> the number of seeds I've got, specific kinds of seeds, because I'm reading about your process. And I'm wondering other readers who happen to be gardeners, we need like a page where we can compare our gardens and say the Camille Dungy uh, influence here. I get a sense of the depth of knowledge, just even in reading. I live in Johannesburg. We've had a bit of snow, but we really, this is not snowing country. And then reading the ways you're having to contend with those extremes in temperature, like I really was sort of taking my hat off to you and grateful that I don't <laughs> live there and have to have a garden and that kind of, and you managed to convey that, like the, the way you grapple with this, like everything's buried and then it emerges again. So I was left with a real appreciation of that. So for me, the logic and the expansiveness of the book, this kind of the beauty and the fact that like, you can't talk about your yard without talking about Kali, about Ray, without talking about your childhood, your families, about being a Black woman, a poet, a mother, without talking about what it means to live in the country you live in, America, without talking about love, hate, prejudice, God, religion history and so on. The logic, as I said, just made absolute sense to me. And so for me, for this reader, like you, you gave me a book where everything within it belonged. You question, something I loved was you, you question naming and you question the naming of plants and the use of certain words. We look at a word like weed or wild or the word nature or environment. Um, there's a beautiful section where you name the plants. And then I was struck because you also name the poisons. And you question why the so-called canon of environmental literature is, is the pristine landscape with the author that doesn't have to cook a meal for a child or is not juggling a day job. So throughout, this is happening. And then you write of hope. And I loved the definition you offered or what I decided to take as a definition. There's a place where you say hope. What has not yet materialized might one day manifest. Um, 
And so despite the darkness, the pain, the violence, not just of America's history, but its present. And of course, I'm here in this part of the world and we mirror that, that violence, I recognize it. It's a violence often directed at, at black youth, people of color, women of color. But despite that, soil is hopeful. And I, I guess I wanted to ask, what, why did that matter to you, that it is hopeful? Another thing that I say in the passage you're quoting about hope is that without resilience, hope is just a passing fancy. And resilience comes from struggle, from experiencing hardship mm. and finding out ways of manifesting change out of that hardship. That's what soil is. Soil is not fertile without the kind of composted matter that comes from waste and death and decomposition and decay, right? That experience of finding out how to ingest and incorporate the ruin is what makes soil fertile, right? Without that, hmm. soil's yeah. just dirt. dirt. <laughs> Those of us who have to figure out how to incorporate and interrogate and digest and manage hardship and destruction and grief and loss hmm. are that much more poised for hope and resilience that comes out of these experiences and can create beauty and futurity and fertility and possibilities. And so I wanted my book to not ignore that, to not ignore those realities of so many of our lives. I feel that one of the things that I'm hoping that this book has is a kind of immediacy of a call to action. So there, you know, I'm happy that you've read the book and you're interested in, <laughs> in creating this kind of space of life around your own home, right? Or a space of welcome mm -hmm. around your own home in this way, that the sense of the canon that I have of so much environmental writing that that does seem to separate from these concerns of social justice questions and environmental justice questions are separated and they're in a different column. I just don't feel that's useful to where we are in a planetary sense right now. And I wanted my book to be doing the integrated work. Yeah, I challenge anyone to read it and not come away with some, I, I like what you said, I hadn't put it that way, but call to action, absolutely, like just a, just a fire to do something, stick your finger in the ground, whatever it is, you know. I wanted to ask, I guess it's kind of twin questions, but it's what was your favorite part of the writing, like the crafting process of soil, and what was the hardest? Wow, that's a great question. I think... You referred a little bit to the fact that I applied for this fellowship and applied for this Guggenheim Fellowship, which would give me an ability to not teach for a year and really work on a book project. And I received it. And that was super exciting. And the year that I happened to have received this honor ended up being 2020. And so I was home responsible overseeing the education of my then 
fourth grade daughter. And that was not (laughs) what I had intended for the time. But in the end, you know, I say sometimes we don't necessarily get the blessings we want, but if we're lucky, we get the blessings that we need. And I feel that it was useful that there was somebody who, because of this fellowship, I was able to be home with my daughter, right? So many people had more difficult experiences of trying to juggle parenting during that time. And my writing became these kind of daily moments of reflection that even if it felt hurried, I can now look back at it and realize that for 20 or 30 minutes a day, every day, I demanded that I had that at least 20 or 30 minutes of day Mm -hmm. to record what was happening around me and what I was thinking, et cetera. And so now in retrospect, what a gift that I was able to have that time, remember it because I'd had this fellowship. I was like, darn it, I'm going to have something from it. 20 minutes a day, maybe all I have, but that's what I'm going to have. But I feel like if I hadn't had the fellowship, I'm not sure I would have been as demanding, right? About taking that time to record that. That's interesting. So there we go. Just the very act of catching that year feels to me the blessing. And then the hardest thing was then I had these 20 minute nuggets (laughs) and I had to somehow order them and organize them in a way that felt fluid and connected and would connect to others and et cetera. And so I actually did nine major revisions of this book, four of which were entirely retyped where I changed the tense structure at some point or a lot of really radical shifts. And so that revision process was brutal. (laughs) Wow. I can imagine. So was it like a stack of cards, those 20 minutes, and you were sometimes shuffling and saying, this actually belongs at the end and this belongs in the middle? Yes. I opened up my computer every day and typed for my 20 or 30 minutes. I called it my 20, 20, 30s. And those were the files. And each day had a different file. And so then towards the end of the year, I just printed everything out and just moved it around and moved it around over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Wow. 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 I always tell this joke, which is, I mean, probably because I'm a messy writer, I'm not very good at writing to outline and things like that. So I always say, well, you know, I don't want to write a book that I know how it's going to end. But I mean, because I want to be surprised. And I'm just curious, was there anything that you actually didn't know it was coming? I mean, it sounds like that was the whole process was like that. But I guess what surprised you the most about what ended up in soil? Right. At some point, there was a very different narrative arc and it ended at a different place. And I was able to see in a conversation with my editor, Yudan Israel, which I will also add was a delight in this process, which my husband would actually laugh that I say that because in the process of working with him, it did not always feel delightful, but partially because (laughs) this was a Black person who, again, wanted the best for this book, but also wasn't going to let me not go all the way. And so sometimes where I might, you know, that's enough. I've said enough. And he's this urban guy who's like, I don't know. It's not enough. I don't know what you're talking about, you know? And so I just have to have these other times where I was digging further to often 
the really kind of difficult moments of my own personal history that I was describing. But one of the things that I was able to see in conversation with him was that there was this narrative arc that went, as we came to call it, from cottonwoods to snow. So in the very beginning of the book, there's these cottonwood trees that shed these white blossoms and catkins and all kinds of things that are falling at a certain time of year from the trees that are white all around me in this predominantly white town I was moving my family to. And then at the end of the book was snow. And so being able to then organize the book, going from that moment to that first hard frost helped me create a narrative structure that could accompany the structure, the idea base kind of intellectual part so that you don't feel as you're reading the book that you're getting like a series of lectures. Hopefully you know that you're following the track of a season of a year. Yes. And I was interested even just in geography. I found myself wanting to get a sense of the geography of the, of America and where you were and the different places you were moving to and what it meant and the seasons. You really brought us along with that. There's so many stories in the book there's so many sort of vignettes, there are pieces that come up that just feel really precious. But one of the ones that felt quite profound because of how it relates to you and the fellowship was, in my head, I think of it as the Guggenheim story. It's the story that talks about how everything comes at a cost. And you talk about that. I get the humility because something you also always do, you, you hold people to account, but you hold yourself to account because you also account for Everything we do, we have all these grand gestures, but everything we do is an impact. Could you maybe just tell that story because it's such a profound one about the Guggenheim family and the money and then (laughs) how it all comes down? Yeah, I mean, it feels so important to be honest about that kind of thing. I had this luxury of a year where I was paid to not work, right? Like I was paid to not teach. (laughs) And the reason that I had that luxury is because of a family who came here and mined silver in the mountains of the state that I live in, in a state where I'm trying to say we need to be really super careful about the environmental impact of the things that we do. But I am benefiting from an endowment that is created by stripping silver out of the mountains here. The institution where I work, Colorado State University, has a building on campus that was donated by this family. And over and over again, there's always, someone has paid (laughs) a price Mm. for what we reap today. It may be 150 plus years ago. It may have been yesterday. And my real challenge to myself always is to not ignore those truths. I don't necessarily say that it means that I don't take those opportunities when they are made available to me, but I want to do so with a sense of balance and a sense of understanding and, and again, humility to the realities of the past and the present. Yeah, I really get that because as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, it's familiar. What you're describing is familiar for me, maybe in different ways. And it's like, 
what do we do with that? You know, like wanting to ask you. And then I got it because I feel what you do by bringing it into the stories. You're like, well, at least be awake to it, right? At least it's not ignored or pretended over. It's seen. You know, it's like none of us are clean Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a way, right? And we're here and there's a commitment to something, which I really got. Yeah, and I think it's often a bigger violence to pretend that these aren't the truth, that this isn't the truth, and just to ignore it, than to acknowledge that this happened all those years ago. And there's because what, you know, what are the benefits of that endowment? Like, it's incredible the number of artists and thinkers and scholars who have benefited and have done this good work, right? Of course. And so I don't know. None of these answers feel easy to me. And that's maybe another reason why the book. I wanted the book to be far reaching in the kinds of questions it interrogates because no answers are easy. And I wanted to demonstrate the ways that when I start to pull on one thread, so many other things are attached and that's just the reality. Yeah. I must ask, I hope it's not the dreaded question, but is there anything you want to share in terms of the work you're doing at the moment or plans you have for new work or if there is something else you're focusing on it's early days yeah it's early days I think this book took a lot out of me to again I trained as a poet I didn't train as a nonfiction writer I've taught myself how to be a nonfiction writer by reading capaciously and trying to write in this genre and so it was a lot and it was particularly a lot during that moment in my responsibilities as a parent during that time as well. And so Mm. I'm tired (laughs) is the honest answer to this question. And I, I think I learned that from my garden as well, that you're allowed to be, Mm. to flourish and be super productive and put out a lot of flowers and then just not. (laughs) for a while, right? There's very few things that just keep blooming and keep blooming without a bunch of chemicals to stimulate them. And so Mm. I'm bracing some quiet for a while and I can start to hear some niggling in the back of my head about new projects that I want to get into, but I'm not rushing them. Yeah, that seems shot through with wisdom. Thank you so much, Camille. Thank you for engaging with my questions. Really appreciate that. Your questions were incredible. Thank you so much. I loved chatting with you. I now want to move on to the tribute section of our conversation. The empty chair for this episode is Egyptian poet and lyricist Galal El-Bahiri. He's been in prison for five years, the last two years in arbitrary pretrial detention. And recently we're concerned for his health. He recently suspended his 89-day hunger strike. That was in June. And he called on the Egyptian authorities to ensure that he has the right and adequate medical care and and to release him. And we sit with him. And I wanted to invite you, Camille, if you wanted to share a short tribute or any message that you may have. And then I'll share mine. Yeah. Speaking of no easy answers, I'm teaching a class right now at Colorado State University about public-facing poetry and how important it is for a functional democracy. And I want to talk with the students about how frequently I feel the understanding of what can truly be at stake for 
writing a song, <laughs> writing a poem can be. And so I just send fortitude and I just, I want him to know that he's seen and we hear. So I thought I could read some portions from one of Galala Beheri's own poems. The poem is called A Letter from Torah Prison. Opening, you, something in the heart unspoken, something in the throat, the last wish of a man on the gallows when the hour of hanging comes. In the heart of this night, I own nothing but my smile. I take my country in my arms and talk to her about all the prisoners' lives out there beyond the prison's borders, beyond the jailer's grasp, and about man's need for his fellow man, about a dream that was illicit and possible, about a burden that could be born if everyone took part in it. I laugh at a song they call criminal, which provoked them to erect a hundred barricades. And the poem goes on, but that sort of sense of reaching to everyone. I'll go towards the end. We've returned to call on God and proclaim it. We've come back hand in hand. Again, we proclaim it. We've come back and we vow to spread the light, the new dawn, the keen-sighted conscious. It's a love poem. It's a love poem for everyone with a conscious. And I just want to say to Galal that you are loved. Thank you. It's funny. I was just looking and I found Traffic Cascade by Camille Danji. And something in it just struck me. I was thinking, and I'll read it shortly, but I was thinking about the way one action can just ripple through. And I think of the act of writing a sentence, or as you said, writing a lyric, writing a song, and the way forces are so troubled as to imprison or to muzzle. But then I also thought you can't imprison a sentence. You can't muzzle a lyric, you know, and there's something about that. So I'm going to read Trophic Cascade by Camille T. Dungy. After the reintroduction of grey wolves to Yellowstone and, as anticipated, their culling of deer, trees grew beyond the deer stunt of the mid-century. In their upreach, songbirds nested, who scattered seed for underbrush, and in that cover warrened snowshoe hare. Weasel and water shrew returned, also vole, and came soon hawk and falcon, bald eagle, kestrel, and with them hawk shadow, falcon shadow. Eagle shade and kestrel shade haunted newly buried runnels, where deer no longer rummaged, cautious as they were now, of being surprised by wolves. Berries brought bear, while undergrowth and willows, growing now right down to the river, brought beavers, who dammed. Muskrats came to the dams, and tadpoles came to the night song of the fathers of tadpoles with water striders the dark gray american dipper bobbed in fresh pools of the river and fish stayed and the bear who fished also culled deer forms 
and to their kill scraps came vulture and coyote, long gone in the region until now. And their scat scattered seed and more trees, brush and berries grew up along the river that had run straight and so flooded, but thus dammed, compelled to meander, is less prone to overrun. Don't you tell me this is not the same as my story. All this life born from one hungry animal, this whole new landscape, the course of the river changed. I know this. I reintroduced myself to myself, this time a mother, after which nothing was ever the same. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for that reading. Have you never heard your, your poem, Camille? <laughs> Not read that well. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Camille. Thank you so much for, for just spending this time with us, for talking. Soil has stayed with me, and, and even more so now after our conversation. I'm really thankful that you wrote it. And I wanted to add, I just started reading Guidebook to Relative Strangers, Journeys into Motherhood, Race, and History. So. Even though I'm about to say goodbye, it doesn't feel like goodbye. You're, you're right by my bedside. Thank you so much for having me. This has just been a, really a pleasure of a conversation. I appreciate you. Thank you, Yawande and Camille, for this generous, heartening, and vital exchange. Thank you to Andrew Bennett for producing this episode. Thanks to our executive producer, Lara Boxbaum. To Penn South Africa board members Nadia Davids, Yoande Omotosho, Kate Hyman, and the whole of the board of Penn South Africa. And thanks too to Amy Bell Mulaudzi and Jahan Jones Radkowski for their support. Join us again next week for a new episode of Season 9 of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned writers across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversation and highlight shared history. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening.